You're listening to Get Fed Today, one podcast designed to provide the Christian a hearty Bible study five days a week. While our mission is to showcase a variety of different Bible teachers, if you want to access more content from a particular pastor, simply listen to the end of the episode for additional information. On behalf of the entire team at Get Fed Today, it is our prayer that today's episode encourages your growth in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 8. And as you're turning there, uh, let me say what a privilege it is to be here uh, in this church and uh, in this pulpit. I didn't waste any time when the invitation was extended to me to come for one extra evening to Philadelphia. Um, And I am glad that I made that decision, and I hope that by the time we end, you'll be glad that I made the decision as well. (laughs) How good it is that we're not here to listen to a man talk, uh, because that would really be a futile use of a Wednesday evening, but rather that we believe that when God's word is truly preached, that God's voice is really heard. And um, it is in that conviction that we turn to the Bible together, and um, I invite you to follow along as I read, and I'm going to read uh, 20... Uh, six verses of Mark chapter 8, and I'm going to begin reading at verse 1, and I'm actually reading from the New International Version, uh, and uh, if that's not yours, then hopefully it's close enough for you to be able to follow along. Uh, During those days, another large crowd gathered. Since they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. They have already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them home hungry, they will collapse on the way, because some of them have come a long distance. His disciples answered, But where in this remote place can anyone get enough bread to feed them? How many loaves do you have? Jesus asked. Seven, they replied. He told the crowd to sit down on the ground. When he had taken the seven loaves and given thanks, He broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people, and they did so. They had a few small fish as well. He gave thanks for them also and told the disciples to distribute them. The people ate and were satisfied. Afterwards, the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. About 4,000 men were present. And having sent them away, he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the region of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to question Jesus. To test him, they asked him for a sign from heaven. He sighed deeply and said, Why does this generation ask for a miraculous sign? I tell you the truth, no sign will be given to it. Then he left them, got back into the boat, and crossed to the other side. The disciples had forgotten to bring bread, except for one loaf they had with them in the boat. Be careful, Jesus warned them. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. They discussed this with one another and said, It's because we have no bread. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, Why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes but fail to see, and ears but fail to hear? And don't you remember? When I broke the five loaves for the five thousand, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? 
Twelve, they replied. And when I broke the seven loaves for the four thousand, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? They answered, Seven. He said to them, Do you still not understand? They came to Bethsaida, and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. When he had spat on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, Do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home, saying, Don't go into the village. Amen. Well, let's just pause and ask God's help. Our gracious God, we humbly pray that you will make the book live to us. In the words of the children's song, Make the book live to me, O Lord. Show me yourself within your word. Show me myself and show me my Savior and make the book live to me. For Jesus' sake we ask it. Amen. Well, here we are in the eighth chapter of the Gospel of Mark. If you've studied Mark at all, as I'm sure you have, uh, you know that Mark very quickly gets uh, to his uh, business. Uh, There's not the same kind of introduction that you find in, uh, for example, Matthew's Gospel or even in the Gospel of Luke. There isn't a prologue as we find it in John's Gospel. But Mark starts straight into his theme at the beginning, the beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. In other words, he gets straight into it. The gospel begins here. Don't let's waste any time, he says. This is what I'm writing to you about. I'm writing to you about the gospel. Now, bear in mind, if someone had said to him, Mark, what are you writing? And he'd said, I'm writing a gospel. They would have said, a what? Because up until that point, there hadn't been a gospel written down. And what he was now writing was that which he had been able to put together as a result of the eyewitness reports that he had received, probably primarily from Peter himself. And when you read the Gospel of Mark, you find that if you stand back from it far enough, it breaks fairly easily into two sections. The first section takes us all the way through into the passage that we're reading now. And where we stopped is right on the brink of what we might refer to as the second section of Mark's gospel. It is, if you like, the pivotal point that is about to take place, and the emphasis in the final chapters of Mark will be different from that that we find in the opening eight chapters. And what we discover in the passage that I just read is virtually a repeat of what we have just read prior to this. And I have to uh, encourage you to do as your homework, a little background reading, so that you can then confirm what I'm telling you. But if you go back just as far as chapter 6, and you can turn over just a page in your Bible, uh, you will notice that Mark has, in chapter 6, recorded the historical incident that we refer to as the feeding of the 5,000. He has then told us about a voyage that has taken place on the sea, And during that voyage, uh, he has recorded for us the fact that the disciples have failed uh, to get the picture. In verse 52 of chapter 6, they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. Uh, Remember, Jesus had come, and uh, they had cried out because they thought he was a ghost. 
Uh, they're really a quite a dense bunch, if you think about it. Uh, Jesus has just fed the 5,000, give them a miraculous uh, insight into who he is. They're on the boat. He comes walking to them, and they all start to, uh, to cry out to one another. They were dreadfully afraid. Uh, well, they were afraid at the prospect of him getting into the boat, and they were even more afraid when he had settled down the sea. But you have this uh, feeding of the 5,000. You have a sea voyage in which the disciples just don't get the picture. You then have uh, the record of a conflict with the Pharisees. You then have a discussion about bread. You then have a miraculous healing. And the end, you have a declaration of faith. You say, well, if you can go as quickly through chapter 8 as you've just gone through the half of 6 and the whole of 7, we'll be out of here before any time at all. Well, no, I'm going to slow up for just a minute, but I want you to see this because it is important. So in verse 37 of chapter 7, people were amazed. They were overwhelmed with amazement. And this is what they said about Jesus. He has done everything well, they said. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Okay? Then you go into chapter 8, and what do you discover? Now you have another miraculous uh, feeding, followed by a sea voyage in which the disciples don't get a picture followed by a conflict with the Pharisees, followed by a discussion about bread, followed by a miraculous declaration of who Jesus is, namely the great declaration of Peter. Who do you say that I am? Uh, Verse uh, 29 of chapter 8. And uh, Peter answered, You are the Christ. You are the Son of the living God. And what becomes apparent is this, that Jesus has essentially taken his core group his disciple band, he's taken them right through the same material twice because they're not that bright. You, If they were going to get it the first time, then after he'd fed the 5,000, they would have said, oh, oh, there, here comes Jesus. Here comes Jesus. See him walking on the water. Remember, he used to sing that in the 60s. Well, no, no, they're, they're not doing that. They're going, oh, look, there's a ghost. What's that about? Jesus says, didn't you get the picture? Do you have hard hearts? Then it goes through. Now, did you notice what I just read? Dramatic feeding. Sea voyage. Conflict with the Pharisees. And then the same question. Don't you get it, fellas? You see, it's interesting because in the first incident, Jesus uh, sets the deaf man unstops his ears. Here in chapter 8, he takes the blind man and he opens his eyes. And what Mark is actually telling us is that this is exactly what needed to happen to these characters, to these disciples. They needed their ears unstopped and they needed their eyes to be opened. And so do we. And until our ears are unstopped, And until our eyes are opened, we are just as dense as them. We can listen to the Bible. We can sing songs. We can pay close attention to everything and still walk out the door and never get the point at all. And Jesus, in his kindness, takes his disciple band through the material a second time. Now, what I want to do in the passage that we've just read is essentially take a bird's eye view of things. We're not going to descend into all of the details, but hopefully we will do enough 
for you to be stimulated to go home and do more of your own study. But you will notice that Mark provides us, if you like, with a, with a collage in which we see Jesus, first of all, with the crowd, and then we have Jesus with the Pharisees, and then we have Jesus with the disciples, and then we have Jesus with the blind man. So if you imagine this as a large uh, painting, a big collage, if we stand up too close to it, we, we may be in danger of not getting uh, the great panoramic view. So what I want you to do is I want you to stand back with me, as it were, from the text, and let's look at it from a distance and see if we can understand uh, what Mark is telling us here in this important section of his gospel. We'll look at each briefly. First of all, then, uh, the Jesus and the crowd. And if you want to take notes, my heading is simply this, the people were satisfied. Jesus and the people and the people were satisfied. You say, well, where do you get that from? From the Bible, from verse 8. The people ate and were satisfied. You see, I'm not really that bright. You don't have to... You say, well, you got that out of the Bible. What do you think? I mean, you call that a point? Yes, that's the point. It's right out of the Bible. For any budding preachers, uh, try and get your points out of the Bible. You'll be surprised uh, what a difference it will make. You don't want your people going, where did he get that from? You want them to go, oh, I see where he got that from. Now you know you're teaching the Bible. The people were satisfied. Now, on this occasion, we're told that Jesus uh, is the source of the intervention. His compassion comes to the fore. During those days, another large crowd gathered, and since they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, notice verse 2, I have compassion on these people. In the previous incident, in chapter 6 and in verse 35, it was the disciples that came to Jesus informing them of the predicament of the people and suggesting to Jesus that he sends them away to the surrounding countryside. But in that incident, as in this incident, the compassion of Jesus for the people comes to the fore. And he calls his disciples to pay attention to their predicament here in verse 3. If I send them home hungry, they will collapse on the way because some of them have come a long distance. Jesus is a kind and compassionate and gentle shepherd. Back in chapter 6, forgive me for keeping going back and forth, but in chapter 6 and in verse 34, you will notice the process was clear. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he told them, why don't you all give each other a hug and a back rub and roll around in the grass and think some deep thoughts? No, no. What was Jesus' reaction to the fact that they were like sheep without a shepherd? His compassion, notice, gave way to instruction. His compassion gave way to teaching them the Bible. When he saw the people as sheep without a shepherd, he didn't say, now what we really need to do here is make sure that these people have uh, uh, all the necessary things to make sense of their lives. No, he began immediately to instruct them. And today people would be surprised, wouldn't they? They would say if people are in need and their predicament is great, as is true here in the city of Philadelphia, what do we need to do for them? Well, we need to do this and that and the next thing for them. But the compassion of Christ gives way to him teaching them what? What he'd already been teaching them from the very beginning. 
Back in chapter 1, after John the Baptist is put in prison, Jesus stands up on the stage of history, and he says, listen, folks, the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. And that was essentially his story all the way through. And so we must assume that when he has this opportunity to speak to this vast crowd, he brings to them the same message. The kingdom is here in my presence. You need to return. You need to turn around from your wicked way of life, and you need to place your faith and trust in me. Now, in this incident back in chapter 8, it would seem that the conference had lasted for three days. He's already done all the Bible teaching, but he doesn't want them to go home on an empty tummy. Again, you see his sensibility and his sensitivity. The people are going to have to go home to the surrounding countryside, but uh, I don't want them going away, just uh, walking long distances. Many of them haven't had much to eat, and they're not going to have uh, a chance to get anything on the way. Now, the response of Jesus in verse 4, or in verse 3, I should say, gives rise to the response of the disciples in verse 4. His disciples answered, but where in this remote place can anyone get enough bread to feed them? They're always the very practical people, aren't they? Um, Before they said, there's nothing around here, get them out of here. Nice and kind they were, weren't they? And uh, now here they are. We've got a problem again, these hungry people. And the disciples said, well, there's nothing around here, Jesus. You might as well know that. And so their response provokes Jesus' question in verse 5. How many loaves do you have? Now, I'm going to ask you to do this one last time. I won't ask you to do it again. But go back to chapter 6 for just a minute. Right? Jesus says to them in in chapter 6, in the feeding of the 5,000, they said, we've got a real problem here. There's nothing around. Nobody can get anything to eat. Jesus said, well, why, why don't you give them something to eat? And they said, that would take eight months of a man's wages. Are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? Incidentally, they must have had, they must have had some bankroll, huh? Right? You know, it would take eight months of a man's wages. Do you want us to go and spend eight months of our wages just to feed these people? Is that so much it's going to cost? Everyone thinks they're all going around with nothing. No. And then Jesus says, how many loaves do you have? Now, go, go back to chapter 8. His disciples said, where in this remote place can anyone get enough bread to feed them? Jesus said, how many loaves do you have? And you can just imagine one of the disciples going, oh, here we go again. Oh, no. Why did you even say that? Somebody said, someone says, there's, no, there's nothing around here. There's no, there's no McDonald's around here, Jesus. There's nobody going to get anything. And then and Jesus said, well, how many loaves do you have? And somebody digs him in the rigs and said, why did you say that? We're going to go back through the same whole thing here. That's, and that's exactly what they're going to go back through. Now, keep in mind, in this section of Mark, Mark is really answering one question. And the question he's answering is, who is Jesus? He's actually answering the question that is posed by the disciples in chapter 4 and verse 41. That's chapter 4, not chapter 6, so at least I'm being true to myself. But in chapter 4 and in verse 41, after he has calmed the storm... He said to the disciples, why are you so afraid? You still have no faith. And they were terrified and asked each other, who is this? Who is this? 
Even the winds and the waves obey him. Because as good Jewish boys, they knew that the only person who was in control of creation was the Creator. The psalmist spoke of the power of the Creator over his creation. They knew that. Jesus has now, with a word, calmed the sea, which was enough to make them distraught, even though they were familiar with the sea, and some of them were fishermen themselves. And so their terror is even greater as a result of the revelation of himself, but they don't get it. And so they're asking the question, who is this? They've begun to follow him, but they don't really know. And Mark is answering that question. He spends all the way in the first eight chapters, eight and a half chapters, addressing this question, showing Jesus to be the one who has fulfilled the expectations of Mary in the Magnificat. You remember when she sings, My spirit rejoices in God my Savior, because he has looked upon his handmaiden with grace and with mercy. And then she goes on to speak of this child that she has. He has filled the hungry with good things, but he sent the rich away empty. And here he is, the one who has been filling these hungry people with good things, with the absolute necessities of their physical sustenance. But in that, speaking to the great spiritual hunger of the crowd, which is why he instructs them. It's perfect, really, isn't it? It's the best of uh, uh, contemporary church life, the instruction of God's Word, which is good news— and the provision of kindness to the needs of men and women, which which are good deeds. So you've got good news and good deeds. Spurgeon was all about good news and good deeds, hence his orphanages. Moody was all about good news, hence his preaching, and his schools, good deeds. And the pattern is Christ himself. Look at these people. What do they need? They need to know the kingdom of God has come. They need to turn from their sins. They need to trust me. What do they need? They need food. I don't want them collapsing on the way home. And so the people ate. And the people were satisfied. That's point one. Let's move on to the Pharisees. If the people were satisfied, the Pharisees were rejected. Rejected. Then the Pharisees came and began to question Jesus. Some of you will be teachers here this evening, and you know that there there is a way to ask a question that reveals humility of heart and a genuine desire to know the answer. There is also a way to ask a question, which is not really a question at all. It's not somebody in search of a solution— but it's somebody who is just challenging you or seeking to advance their own agenda. There's all the difference in the world by the boy who comes out and says, I don't understand 2 pi r. I mean, what is it? What is pi? I mean I, what, I mean, I know pi. I mean, I like apple pie, but I don't know what pi is. And if you look into his eyes, you realize he doesn't know what pi is. I've got to help this boy. As opposed to the person who comes out and says, could you explain to me why it is that uh, hydrogen and oxygen and and you know you look you go this is he's just trying to he this isn't a question this is a ruse Jesus by this time knows these characters 
He knows they're not there making, making kind inquiries. They didn't come up to him and say, um, uh, we were just wondering, Jesus, if you would be good enough, uh, uh, like a little sign from heaven, if possible. Because he's already been dealing with them back in chapter 3. <laughs> Look, in chapter 3. He went into the synagogue, verse 1, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. And some of them, that is the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. How callous can you be to use the occasion of a man's distinct physical need as an opportunity to challenge Christ? And that's exactly what they were doing. In verse 6 of the same chapter, we're told that when he healed the man— Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. So they've they've created an unholy alliance with Herod and his miserable family. And by the time you get to the end of chapter 3, it's not that they're denying that Jesus was doing miraculous things, but it is that they are ascribing his miraculous deeds to the activity of demonic powers. And so they said in verse 22 of Mark 3, He is possessed by Beelzebub, by the prince of demons. He is driving out demons. These are the people that have now shown up once again. It's like they're jumping out from behind walls all the time. When Jesus goes walking in the countryside and the, and the, and the boys are having a little bit of the, the uh, you know, a little bit of grain, uh, they're rubbing it between their hands and and doing it like you're eating peanuts or popcorn in the movies, and they're walking through, boom, out they come again. How do they know to jump out at that point? Because they were watching. They're looking for a way to accuse him. That's the context. You see, if you don't read your Bible and, and think about the fact that a verse is in the context of surrounding verses, and surrounding verses are in the context of a larger context, and the chapter's in the context of its of his genre and his book and so on, you can pretty well make the, make the Bible do anything you want. And that's the danger of some of you in your home Bible studies. They haven't finished reading the passage before you put up your hand and say, I'd like to tell you what this passage means to me. And if you've got a good Bible study teacher, he'll tell you, I don't care what it means to you. <laughs> and you'll be deeply offended. But then he'll explain to you, first of all, we need to know what it means. Once we know what it means... I might be interested to know what it means to you. But until we know what it means, I don't flat out care what it means to you. Because it may be a real problem for everybody. So when we put the question of the Pharisees in the wider context of what we've seen in the previous chapters, then we realize that Jesus is not about to play their game. His reaction to the need of the crowd in first 10 verses is compassion. His reaction to the approach of the Pharisees in this little section is frustration. Frustration. Notice verse 12. He sighed deeply. Now, that people say, you know, the Bible is just a bunch of legends. Somebody wrote it down in the second and third century and so on. Have you ever read legend? Legend doesn't read like this. You don't have things in legend that are descriptive of an eyewitness account. He sighed deeply. How could Mark ever write that down? Unless somebody who was present told him. And the person who was present must have been so struck by the response of Jesus 
that it registered for them. They would never, ever be able to remember that encounter without remembering that sigh, that he sighed. You know, sometimes our fathers sighed, or maybe you had a grandmother that sighed. You knew what was coming. You knew what it, she didn't have to say anything. It was just she did the, or whatever, just, oh, look out, hang on, wait a minute, right? And so here we've got Jesus. This is a memorable sigh. It's an indication of his divine impatience. Divine impatience. Do you see how much time he has for the least and the last and the left out? Do you see how much time he has for the people that the disciples say, why don't you send them home? Or why don't you send the children away? Or Bartimaeus, why don't you be quiet? We're doing an evangelistic campaign here, you know. Jesus doesn't have time for stuff like this. You quit that shouting. You see how much time Jesus has when we come to him in our need? When we come to him and say, Lord Jesus, my ears are stopped, my eyes are closed, my life's a mess. Do you see how much time he has for you? Do you see how little time he has for the religious fraud? His most stinging rebukes are reserved for those who do not care to find out who he is, but simply want to advance their own agenda. They're not trying to find out who Jesus is. They're simply rearranging their prejudices. And so Jesus will not play their game. He's impatient with them. Despite everything that they know about Moses, everything that they know about the prophets, they remain unconvinced. And so he refuses to provide them with any further incentive for belief. I meet people all the time say, well, if Jesus did this, or God did this, or he came down and he did this, then I would believe him. Who do you think you are? You're crazy. He's not going to do it. Why is he not going to do it? I'll tell you why. For the same reason that he wouldn't do it for the Pharisees. You may have a big brain, and you may be proud of your big brain, and your big brain will finally submit to the authority of God's Word if you're ever to be converted. Because God is prepared to cater to your intellectual integrity, but he is not interested in pandering to your intellectual arrogance. Jesus was not about to do circus acts for the Pharisees, and he ain't going to do them for you either. You say, well, I think that's a little over the top. No, it's not. Luke chapter 16, do you remember it? The story of rich man and Lazarus? Huh? There was a rich man, verse 19, who was dressed in purple and fine linen. We can slip through that. He ends up on the wrong side of the fence. And um, he's in deep trouble in hell. And he's in torment. And he looks up, verse 23, and he sees Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. And so he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I'm in agony in this fire. It's interesting. People in hell are just going to be the same as they were in earth. This guy was given orders on earth. Now he's given orders in hell. He's, he's, telling, he's telling Lazarus what he's supposed to do. People say death is the great equalizer. No, it's not. No, it's not. But Abram replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you receive good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he's comforted here and you're in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. Okay, he said, then how about this? Send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. 
And Abram replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. In other words, they have their Bibles. Let them read their Bibles. Oh, no, Father Abram, he said. But if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. And he said to them, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even though somebody rises from the dead. And by the time Mark is writing his gospel, that has actually been fulfilled. Jesus has risen from the dead, and still they reject him. And so Jesus leaves them. The phraseology, I think, is quite significant. You'll notice that in verse 10, in relationship to the crowd, it says he sent them away. In verse 13, in relation to the Pharisees, it says he, he left them. He left them. It's almost as if he shook his sandals in a sign of his rejection of them. You've got Moses and the prophets. Why don't you pay attention to them? No, we don't want that. We'd like a sign from heaven. Why do you look for a sign? I'm sorry, you're not getting a sign. Salutary, isn't it? You see, the mercy of God and the judgment of God meet perfectly in Christ. There's no soft soap here. There's no, well, we're all Jack Tamsin's bairns. There's no, well, we'll all be fine in the end. No, it doesn't matter. I know you hate me, and I know you reject me, and so on, but you'll be fine. No. Uh -uh. Now, what about the disciples? If the people were satisfied and the Pharisees were rejected, what about the disciples? Well, I I wrote down in my notes, the disciples were challenged. They were challenged. (laughs) They certainly were um, involved in quite a dialogue here, weren't they? Now, I would imagine that Jesus had his own spot on the boat anytime they had a boat. Why shouldn't he? He's the leader. And uh, yeah, he, he, he had already been—we um, found him on a cushion at the stern, which I believe is the back. And um, they'd wakened him up from there on his cushion and uh, to let him know that uh, they were all going to drown. <laughs> and uh, it's a really bright group. A wonderful group. They woke up the Lord of creation to let him know that his creation was about to completely overwhelm him. And uh, so he had he'd taken care of that. Now, I, I imagine that when he got on the boat here, and so we're back on the boat again, and um, he perhaps thought, well, we'll get, we'll get a little bit of respite. He left them, he got back into the boat and crossed over to the other side. But no, there wasn't going to be any respite for Jesus, not on this voyage. And once again, uh, we've got the fellows, uh, the the, uh, disciple band, and they are making a hash of it as they had done on the previous occasion. Uh, They were apparently huddled in a bit of a conference, if I'm accurate, and it's pure conjecture. So don't uh, don't say that Beg uh, has got a theory about Jesus and his cushion. I don't. I'm just saying it is a possibility that he would go and try and get a little bit of shut-eye. or You know, you can't listen to those characters all the time. But he gets back there, and he looks up, and they're all huddled. They've, they've all got into one of their huddles again. They're having a conference. And, and the subject under discussion, ironically, is bread. Bread. How fantastic is this? Someone has now forgotten the lunch. What a terrific group. So now they've got a major discussion going, because ironically, 
despite the fact that they had bread coming out of their ears in the previous two incidents, they have now shown up on the boat with one loaf between the entire group. And the disciples had forgotten to bring bread except for one loaf they had with them in the boat. You imagine them all looking at each other. Well, I, what, I don't know. What, you, you're the one that usually gets the bread. I don't know who got the bread. What should we do with the bread? The bread. So, Jesus comes forward. He says, guys, look. I don't know what you're doing about the bread, but let me just, since you're talking about bread, let me just give you a word. So let me give you a warning. Let me warn you. I know you're preoccupied with the questions of time, but let me give you a warning in relationship to eternity. Be careful and watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. Now, we could spend a long time on this, but we're not going to. I'm just going to tell you what I think it is. This is my best shot. Make sure, says Jesus, that you are not corrupted by the hypocrisy of the Pharisees or the hostility of Herod. Because that, that was the combination. Hypocrisy and hostility. And they combined with the Herodians, looking for a way to try and kill Jesus. That was their agenda. Jesus says, I want to warn you concerning these things. Now, it's interesting, but the disciples were masterful at getting the wrong end of the stick. For, the, for those of us who are teachers, we ought to take tremendous encouragement from this. You preach Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. Your pastor's been here for 100 years and doing the same thing. And, and, and uh, he walks away from his study, and he, goes, and he must go down there and just lay on his face many times and go, Oh, who, why, who do, how did you give me these people, Lord? Look at these people. Look, I preach my heart out, and they're like, Whoa. I mean, just, just like, woo, just missing them entirely. Well, here's a tremendous encouragement, because for all of us as pastors, you get the same thing in John chapter 4. And Jesus sat down by the well. He's a little thirsty and hungry and everything. And the boys go off into the town. They come back with the sandwiches. They find him talking with a woman. And they're amazed that he's talking with a woman. They were surprised. And why are you talking with her? And, uh, and so on. And so they said, well, are you, going, are you going to eat the sandwiches? Or what are you going to do? Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you don't know anything about. And when they said, oh, yeah, we get that. Yeah, spiritual food from heaven. No, no, no. Then they said to each other, did somebody bring him sandwiches? <laughs> okay. Rabbi, eat. I have food to eat that you know nothing of. Somebody go and get lunch and go back here before us? And Jesus says, guys, wise up. You're always talking about how long it is to the harvest and what's happening next and so on. I tell you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields. They're white already for harvest. You're up here at the front of the boat starting on about bread again. Let me tell you, be careful. Watch out. Lest the hypocrisy of the Pharisees feeds into your soul. Lest the hostility of Herod eats into your heart as it did in the case of Judas. He's not issuing warnings that are irrelevant. Jesus is not wasting his breath here. He is saying this because it needs to be said. He's warning his disciples about a kind of unbelief which reveals itself in a hard heart. An unbelief which reveals itself in a hard heart. 
Listen, if you sit and listen to the Bible being taught, if you listen to the story of the gospel being given to you again and again, and you resist it and you resist it, I want to tell you something from experience. I have not found that people who do that become over time more susceptible to the gospel, but less susceptible to the gospel. They become so familiar with the story, which God has quickened their hearts to turn to, and which they have rejected, that they are then able simply to sit and listen to it. It's like water on a tin roof. It's like water off a duck's back. That is why the Bible always says, today is the day of salvation. Now is the accepted time, for this is the only time we ever have. Today, if you hear God's voice, do not harden your hearts. And remember in chapter 6, which, with which you're very familiar by this time, remember Jesus said to them on that occasion, why are you so terrified that I come walking out to you on the water? Mark says, presumably because Peter told him, Mark says, they didn't get it because they had not understood about the loaves, their hearts being hardened. We've only got one loaf. What are we going to do now? Guys, don't worry about the loaf just now. Worry about your hearts. Worry about whether you're paying attention. Worry about whether you're getting the picture here. You see, unbelief, unbelief, even a small amount of unbelief, like leaven, can have a significant impact. Pastor Joe and I were talking earlier this evening about events in the 20th century and the way evangelicalism and fundamentalism has drifted in the last 50 or so years. And eventually you can trace it to tiny deviations, little things that people regarded as not being that significant. Well, it doesn't really matter, you know, if you believe in Genesis 1 to 11, I mean, after all, and so on. It matters. It matters. Don't kid yourself that you can sequester little areas and put them in the department of unbelief and find that it is like an isolated and contained tumor in your body of faith. Be careful. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees. And verse 16 makes it abundantly clear how necessary the warning was. Because look at the reaction. Can you, can you believe these people? I mean, it's not nice to laugh at them. That's not nice. But, I mean, look. Be careful. Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. And they discussed this with one another. And they said, I think it's because we only came on here with one loaf. You talk about not getting the point. And so Jesus challenges them with a series of questions, doesn't he? Aware of their discussion, Jesus says, let me ask you a few questions, fellas. Number one, why are you, why are you, talking, why are you still talking about having no bread? Well, they just must have looked down at the bottom of the boat. Do you still not see or understand? Well, I don't know if we do or we don't. Are your hearts hardened? I hope not. Do you have eyes but fail to see and ears but fail to hear? Have you got short memories? 
You see, the questions of Jesus here are prophetic in this sense, that they have the ring of the prophet about them. When you go back and read the prophets, you find that God speaks to his people through the prophets in this way all the time. One illustration from Jeremiah, chapter 5, verse 21. You needn't turn to it. Here is what it says. God speaks through Jeremiah to his people, and he says, Hear this, you foolish and senseless people, who have eyes but do not see, who have ears but do not hear. You're my people, he says. I've redeemed you. I've brought you out of Egypt. I've shown you the wonders. And you're foolish. And you're senseless. You've got eyes, but apparently you don't use them. You've got ears, and apparently you've got your fingers in them. Isn't it interesting that when you get to Luke chapter 24, with Jesus on the Emmaus Road with the disciples, who are all disappointed because, from their perspective, uh, salvation history has come to a crashing halt in a Palestinian tomb, and they say to the stranger, not knowing that it's Jesus, uh, I'll tell you what, we had hoped that he was the one to redeem uh, our people Israel. We thought that we were off to the races. And remember what Jesus said? How foolish. How foolish and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have written. Do you see, loved ones, that the confidence of heaven is in the Bible? Jesus on the Emmaus Road could have gone, you know, like, Shazam! You know, it's me! Hey, hey! You know, we thought he was the one to redeem Israel, but he got buried and everything, and it's all over. Jesus could have gone, hey, hey, look at this! Jesus, hey, hey, how's that? And he doesn't do that. What does he do? He does a Bible study. And beginning with Moses and the prophets, he began to explain to them in the Scriptures all the things concerning himself. Why? Because that is exactly what all of us would need. We were not on the Emmaus Road. If he had done it in that dramatic way, we would have said, well, I suppose if we could have had a dramatic thing like that, then we might have believed like that. But no, he said, look, I, mind you, it must have been an unbelievable Bible study. But nevertheless, it was a Bible study. And he took them through and he says, this is foolishness and senselessness and so on. And here he is with his disciples in this occasion. And he says the exact same thing to him. Okay. It is prophetic, but it is also parental. There is a parental dimension to these questions. Because parents do this all the time. I can't find my homework. Well, you've got two eyes, don't you? I mean, it's not, it doesn't sound very nice. But when you've had it 40 times and it's only Tuesday, you've got to use some kind of intervention. Are you listening to me? I mean, if I told you this once or if I told you it a thousand times, that's the language of parents. That's the language he uses. Don't you ever listen to what I'm saying? That's what he says. <laughs> you know, I just said to you, you know, we did the, we did the 5,000. That was pretty good. You've got to admit, that was good, right? Then we got the ghost thing going on the boat. You're like, oh, it's a ghost. I, I've, I've overlooked that. Then we got the question about the bread. We went through that one time. Now I've done the 4,000 for you. And finally, let me just ask you, how many people do you think I fed with this bread over the last couple of gigs? Well, about 9,000. Right. And let me ask you, too. How many baskets were left over that you had to go pick up between the two? 19 baskets. Okay. Verse 21. And so he said to them, Do you still not understand? Now, what is Mark doing here? What is Mark telling the readers of his gospel? 
What is it that becomes absolutely apparent to us in this incident? He's telling us, he's making it clear that it is going to take divine intervention for these disciples to get it. It's going to take the the direct impact of God himself. And if you come tomorrow night, I'll do the second part of this. In fact, I'll do the second part of this whether you come tomorrow night or not. But the fact is... That if you go home and do your homework in preparation for tomorrow night, you will remember that he then says to them, what's the word on the street? Who do people say I am? They give him a variety of answers. He says, but who do you say I am? Peter says, you're the Christ. And you remember what John tells us in his gospel. He says that Jesus said to him in response, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Here's the deal. It always takes divine intervention for somebody to get it. You see, the, the picture of the ears in the previous section and the picture of the eyes, which we now come to in closing, are perfect pictures of these disciples. They need their ears unstopped. They need their eyes to be opened. And Mark is making it clear that it cannot happen apart from divine intervention. You may be here tonight and you're wrestling with the claims of Jesus. You're wondering about things. You may have been dragged here. You may be stuck here going, if you don't stop soon, I think I'm going to go crazy. Well, anyway, let me just say this to you. There is no intellectual road to God. By that, I don't mean that if you're clever, you can't get there. What I mean is, not that you have to take your head off and put it under the seat to become a Christian. But the road to God is God coming to us, not us going to him. In other words, it is by revelation. It is when God makes himself known. And he's given us the Bible so that we might know. Finally, and we'll just say a word on this because our time has gone, but... um, the, 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 the people were satisfied, the Pharisees were rejected, the disciples were challenged, and finally the blind man was cured. The blind man was cured. Now, this is a real need and a real incident, but I think it is a classic illustration of what needed to happen to the disciples. Isn't it? I mean, this is what they needed. Because after all, if you take this event, I mean... This wasn't a particularly hard case. So Jesus had to have a second go at it. He didn't need a second go at anything. So he did this purposefully, right? I mean, he didn't go, okay, can you see anything now? Okay, let me try that one again. (laughs) Right? So what's he doing? It's a classic illustration of what these disciples need. You're the Christ. You go five verses ahead. Get behind me, Satan. What? Well, you're going to need a little more work, Peter. What do you see? I see that you're the Christ. Okay? Let me tell you what that means. 
I need to go up to Jerusalem and be crucified and suffer at the hands of cruel men and so on? He goes, oh, no, 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 not that kind of Christ. See, people want a Messiah of their, of their own making. People are quite happy to have a Messiah. There's lots of Messiahs around. The Messiah they don't want is this Messiah, whose blood cleanses from sin, who is the only Savior because he's the only one qualified to save, who's the one who triumphs by his death, who is victorious over sin. Let's conclude with this thought. The person, the man, the woman without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God for their foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them for they are spiritually discerned. So you go to church, you listen to the thing, you say, very interesting, I like Pastor so-and-so, but it's, it's bogus. I mean, I, I know everybody was getting churned up about the blood of Jesus washing away sin. Is, I, you know, I, I don't want to be unkind to anybody. It doesn't mean anything at all to me. Why? Well, because you need to be born again. And when you're born again, when the Spirit of God intervenes, when your eyes are opened, when your lips are set free, then you will sing, And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain? For me, who him to death pursued? Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, would die for me? Unconverted people don't sing that song. They can't sing that song. That's why Jesus said to Nicodemus, you've got to be born again. You'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. You'll never see the kingdom of heaven. And when Peter writes to those who have been born again to a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead in 1 Peter chapter 1, later on in chapter 1, he reminds them of how it is that they were born again. They were born again, he says, through the living and enduring Word of God. Born again through the living and enduring Word of God. That's why I began with a little chorus from Scotland. Make the book live to me. O Lord, show me yourself within your word. Show me myself and show me my Savior and make the book live to me. And Christ has all the time in the world for those of us who come to him on bended knee in an honest acknowledgement of our need of his divine intervention. But he'll walk away from you if you're determined just to justify your unbelief. Such mercy, such grace, such unerring judgment. Well, let us pray. God, our Father, we thank you that we do have a Bible and that the safety factor is that we can all go home and read it again and um, with your help seek to sort things out. I pray tonight for any who have come here who are as yet undecided concerning Jesus, that nothing that I have said will be a hindrance 
to their laying hold of his great and precious promise that whoever comes to me, as Jesus said, I will never turn away, that all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. We pray tonight that you will so work in in our lives that our testimony may be that of childlike faith and sincerity of heart. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to Get Fed Today. Today's sermon comes from Pastor Alistair Begg. If you enjoy the message, you can access more of Pastor Alistair's teaching ministry by visiting truthforlife.org.